A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm glad you've joined us on the program today. Coming up on the show, we're going to be talking about what's going on in Baltimore, Maryland, where city officials still trying to get a grip on uh, an out-of-control homicide rate. I mean, this is nothing new in Baltimore. We've seen over 300 homicides for, I believe, five years running in the city. 2020 looks to be uh, no different, but they are going back to the drawing board in terms of their uh, latest crime-fighting strategy. And uh, for once, uh, they're not actually aiming at legal gun owners, which is already a, a step in the right direction. Uh, before we get to that, though, let's talk about uh, a couple of new cases that have been filed in federal court. Wrote about this at Bearing Arms earlier today. Uh, in New Jersey, the National Rifle Association, along with the Association of New Jersey Rifle and Pistol Clubs and the New Jersey Coalition of Gun Owners, uh, filing suit over that state's may issue carry laws, specifically the justifiable need requirement that the folks have to demonstrate before they can get a concealed carry license. Uh, most folks can't show a justifiable need because self-defense isn't considered a justifiable need. Either is, it's my right to bear arms. That's not considered a justifiable need in New Jersey. Uh, in Maryland, the Second Amendment Foundation and the Firearms Policy Coalition filing suit against that state's uh, quote-unquote assault weapons ban put in place back in uh, 2013 as part of the Maryland Firearms Safety Act. Uh, in addition, last week, uh, we also saw legislation, excuse me, a litigation filed against Maryland's may issue carry laws as well. So there is obviously a couple of things going on here. Pretty clearly, uh, Second Amendment organizations feel pretty confident right now uh, about the prospects of uh, challenges to gun control laws at the Supreme Court now that Justice Amy Coney Barrett is on the bench. Now, it'd be a while for the cases that are filed this week have a chance to get up to the Supreme Court. But the good news is that in the meantime, there are other cases that the court could consider in the near future dealing with the right to carry, dealing with bans on so-called assault weapons. Uh, and if the court issues favorable rulings in those cases, then their opinions would have an impact on cases like the ones filed this week. So we're getting a leg up here uh, and getting things in place so that when these good decisions, knock on wood, hopefully start coming down, uh, let's say, you know, the, the, the young case out of Hawaii, let's say the Supreme Court uses that as a vehicle to rule that, yep, Americans do have the right to keep and they've got the right to bear firearms. Well, a good decision in Young versus Hawaii, uh, which again, the court has not yet agreed to hear, but but that will be likely the first carry case that will be coming uh, uh, up for Supreme Court review, or at least the opportunity for Supreme Court review. If, if, they, if they deliver a good ruling, let's say they take that case, deliver a ruling that gun owners like, that ruling then would apply to the challenge to New Jersey's carry laws and to uh, Maryland's carry laws. The, the, the language that the Supreme Court use uh, will, you know, hopefully use hypothetically to protect the uh, right to bear arms uh, would come into play because that would be a nationwide precedent. And depending on how expansive that Supreme Court, that hypothetical Supreme Court really might be, uh, again, this could encompass existing legal challenges in other states. So this is a very good sign that uh, these cases have been filed uh, in Maryland, you know, in particular, because we're going to be talking about what's going on in Baltimore. I mentioned the quote unquote assaultments ban that was put in place as part of the Maryland Firearm Safety Act in 2013. Governor Martin O'Malley at the time said that this was a package of gun control legislation 
that would make Maryland residents safer. Just plain and simple. They were going to change the law. Legal gun owners had nothing to worry about. Criminals, they should be the ones in fear. But really, the, the, the beneficiaries of uh, the Maryland Fire and Safety Act was going to be the people of Maryland itself, right? Well, it didn't really work out that way. Since the Maryland Fire and Safety Act was put in place, since Maryland's so-called assaultments ban went on the books, since their universal background check measure went on the books, since uh, you know the other provisions, including uh, magazine size restrictions, uh, went on the books. We've seen gun companies leave the state. We've seen gun stores shut down. But we've also seen the homicide rate in Baltimore rise to the highest levels in history. 2019, Baltimore had the highest per capita homicide rate in the city's history, surpassing the homicide rate even back in the early 1990s during the height of the crack epidemic. Yeah. And it's weird because nobody in Baltimore and uh, nobody in Maryland, outside of, you know, gun owners, Nobody wants to talk about the failure of the Gun Control Act of 2013 in terms of keeping people safe. Instead, though, what we're starting to see, more of a quiet pivot, not acknowledging the failures of the past, but kind of setting off in a slightly different direction. The uh, crimereport.com. Talking about Baltimore's focused deterrence, they say it's uh, been recycled a third time in a bid to curb gun violence. So what is focused deterrence? We've talked about this on the program in the past, and it's an idea that I'm, I'm generally in favor of, although it can take various forms. Uh, focused deterrence generally is the idea of focusing on those who are most likely to offend and, and most likely to be the victims of violent crime. National Institute of Justice describes focused deterrence as a method of policing that targets, quote, specific criminal behavior committed by a small number of chronic offenders who are vulnerable to sanctions and punishment. Sanctions and punishment. Keep that in mind, by the way, as we talk about how Baltimore is going to try to implement their new focused deterrence strategy, because sanctions and punishment really don't appear to be a huge priority in this new effort. According to the Baltimore Sun, Baltimore's group violence reduction strategy will create, quote, a network of street-level intelligence that's designed to intervene in conflicts that are likely to turn into armed violence. So these are basically violence interrupters. The idea being that, all right, if you got these folks who are, in many cases, former gang members themselves, they, they live in these neighborhoods, they're aware of the beefs that are going on, when they hear about something starting, they can intervene and inject themselves into that situation, tell these folks, hey, man, put the guns down. It's not worth going to prison over. It's not worth taking a life over. And hopefully diffuse that situation. <sighs> these programs have seen some success. But there are better, I think, uh, uh, focused deterrent strategies that Baltimore doesn't appear to be really investing in. They claim, by the way, that, that this strategy is going to reduce homicides by about 100 per year over the next eight years. So that'd be almost a 33% reduction in the city's homicide rate. I mean, that's a big promise to make because th these violence interrupters, you know, well, the way that I would go about doing this, if I were in charge in Baltimore, which I'm not, freely admit that, 
Um, I would look at a strategy that uh, David Kennedy talks about. He's a uh, professor at John Jay Criminal, uh, John Jay Justice, uh, uh, College of Criminal Justice in New York. Wrote a book a few years ago called Don't Shoot, uh, which focuses on another way of focused deterrence. Uh, a strategy that was developed back in Boston starting in the late 1990s and has then been replicated around the country ever since. Rather than using violence interrupters, though, the idea behind Kennedy's focused deterrence strategy, uh, which sometimes goes by the name Project Ceasefire, is again, you identify those most likely offenders and the most likely victims. These are folks who already have had plenty of contact with the criminal justice system. Most of them are already on probation or parole. So you, you, you have a call in and you bring them in. And there are two groups of individuals there. On the one side, there's the community. There are the, the pastors and the teachers and the parents and the neighborhood business owners. And on the other side, there's the law. There's the chief of police. There's the district attorney. There's the U.S. attorney. Uh, there's a representative from the DEA, from the ATF. And these two different groups have the same message for those likely offenders. You're going to stop shooting each other. That's it. You're going to stop shooting each other. We'll help you. We'll help you turn your life around if you let us. But we're going to make you stop if you don't. And with these efforts to, you know, again, have, you know, job training, GED, counseling, addiction programs, for those who want to better their lives, along with the, the promise, not the empty threat, but the actual promise of, look, if you keep shooting, we're going to come down on you like a hammer. And uh, we're not going to be taking your case into district court like we have in the past. You're not going to get a plea deal like you have in the past. This is the U.S. attorney. He's going to be taking your case. As a convicted felon, we can charge you if we catch you with a gun. And we can put you behind bars for five years, maybe 10 years or more. If there's a crime of violence attached, you could be going away for decades. So think about this. And when that strategy is used, in Boston in the late 1990s, juvenile homicides were reduced by more than 50%. We've seen amazing success in uh, North Carolina, uh, Ohio, and elsewhere with this type of program. But again, Baltimore, ah, this doesn't seem to be the type of focus deterrence that Baltimore is interested in. According to the Baltimore Sun, the plan has three initiatives. Offering necessary support services to those who are vulnerable to committing crimes. All right, so that's the, again, that's the helpful side, right? Revamping intelligence hubs so that law enforcement can accurately and better gather information about individuals and then hiring a team of directors and coordinators to see the program succeed. So it's all carrot, no stick, it sounds like, in Baltimore. They say it's going to cost about $1.8 million over the next three years. Um, they've already got most of that through grants and donations that'll go towards hiring social workers that are skilled in working uh, with at-risk individuals. Uh, again, that's, that's fine. But what happens... When these individuals don't avail themselves of the opportunity to change their lives. When the violence interrupters can't interrupt every act of violence. What happens then? It, it really sounds like the city of Baltimore uh, is ignoring half the equation here. Baltimore Sun notes, by the way, that this is the third time that the city has tried to uh, bring about some form or, or fashion of focused deterrence. They tried it in the uh, late 1990s. 
again in 2014. Baltimore Sun says neither really saw much success. Uh, David Kennedy actually wrote about the effort in the late 1990s in his book, Don't Shoot, when uh, Martin O'Malley was actually coming in as the mayor of Baltimore. This is before, you know, a decade or so before he signed the uh, Maryland Fire and Safety Act as governor. Back then he was the mayor, not a huge fan of focused deterrence, really believed that, uh, you know, what we, what we got to do is we got to have this, you know, just crack down. Arrest everybody that we can for every crime that we can. Show people that we're serious about addressing crime. And arrests soared along with the violent crime rate. Because they were not focused on the most violent offenders. People who might have been carrying a gun without a license, but they're not violent criminals. They're carrying a gun because they live in a bad neighborhood and they want to protect themselves. Those folks were getting arrested and thrown in prison just like the guys with a rap sheet as long as my arm. And uh, again... Didn't work out too well. So I, I don't blame. Also, David Kennedy writes about the infighting that took place between the various agencies that were involved in this program that also really inhibited the success of focused deterrence in Baltimore in the late 1990s. Now, again, it appears like this is going to be a um, kind of a different animal uh, in Baltimore. Baltimore uh, mayor-elect Brandon Scott said, where we failed before is about not getting down and working with the people on the ground we never fully implemented it. Well, I, I mean, to be honest, it, it kind of sounds to me like they're still not fully implementing this if it's all carrot and no stick. I wish them the best of luck. I'm glad they're not focusing on legal gun owners, but as long as they're not offering real consequences for real violent crimes, I, I'm not sure how successful this strategy is going to be, quite honestly. All right, let's turn our attention to our uh, good deed of the day, our recidivist report, our uh, armed citizen story. We'll start with our recidivist report from uh, Scambia County, Florida, where a triple homicide suspect, yeah, turns out was uh, recently released from prison for a shooting death. Yeah, back in 2015. How about that? Uh, NorthernScambia.com says 26-year-old Jaron Britt Miles. Now charged with first-degree homicide, home invasion, robbery, aggravated battery, possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. He's accused in the shooting of three people Monday night in Century, Florida, one of which died at the scene. Uh, Miles was released from state prison in March of this year. After completing a sentence for a January 2015 shooting in Century, he was on felony probation until January of 2026. He was 21 when he pleaded no contest and was sentenced to prison for manslaughter with a firearm for the January 15th, 2015 shooting of 20-year-old Jonathan Ray Wilson. Uh, in that case, Miles was alleged to have held a gun to Wilson's head, uh, first with a magazine out, and he pulled the trigger, and it dry-fired. He then put the magazine back in. Wilson, I guess in a display of you know braggadocio, ended up positioning the gun right there on his own forehead. Miles pulled the trigger and shot and killed the man. Sentenced to five years in prison, already out. Months after his release, now facing a murder charge. And uh, young Mr. Miles is our uh, recidivist report subject of the day. Our armed citizen story from Lexington, South Carolina, where a concealed carry holder shot a gunman who apparently was ticked off about his uh, ex-girlfriend hanging out with a new beau. This was uh, Saturday night, 22-year-old Christopher James Costello now charged with two counts of attempted murder mm -hmm. and a possession of a weapon during a violent crime. Lexington County Sheriff Jay Coons says after taking statements from the victims and witnesses, 
Detectives determined that Costello fired a few rounds of people in front of a paracord home, including two people that he'd been following in his car to that location. Uh, one of the people, a former girlfriend of Costello's, another a concealed carry holder. Uh, once Costello fired a few rounds of those folks, the concealed carry holder uh, fired back, striking Costello in the upper body, a, a non-life-threatening injury, according to the sheriff, who says that Costello drove away from the scene after he was treated and released at a local hospital, booked into the Lexington County Detention Center on Sunday morning. Finally today, our good deed of the day. This is not a big story. It's just one of those little things that I saw, and I thought, you know what? This is nice. High Point, North Carolina. What you're watching here, looking at here, is uh, Officer Sepulveda with the High Point, North Carolina Police Department teaching a young man how to ride his bicycle in the parking lot of the uh, High Point Police. High Point Police sharing this on their social media where they shout out to Officer Sepulveda in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing, helping to teach that uh, lesson that they say, once you learn, you never forget. They said that about roller skates too, though, and I got to confess, a couple years ago, I put on roller skates for like the first time in 30 years, took my kids roller skating. Yeah, I can still ride a bike. Can't roller skate for squat anymore. So, uh, Officer Sepulveda, stick with the bikes because you know what? These kids don't need to learn how to roller skate anyway. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. Thank you for being a part of the program. As always, we'll be back tomorrow with more of the latest Second Amendment news and information from all across the nation. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Town Hall Media on YouTube in the meantime, that we'll never miss a program. Or if you just want the audio, Go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Just look for Barry and Arms, Cam and Company. You'll find us there as well. Have a great rest of your hump day Wednesday. Until we talk again, be well, be safe, and be free.